So we're joined by Mark Stay, who will be reading to us from and talking about The Ghost of Ivy Barn, which is the third book in the Witches of Woodville series. Mark, thanks for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Anytime. Any opportunity that I have for writers to read to me, I will definitely take them up on it. <laughs> so let's dive right in. Can you tell us like, what is the book about? Well, the book is the third in a series uh, of the Witches of Woodville series. And the Witches of Woodville, I pitch it to people as the last 10 minutes of Bedknobs and Broomsticks meets Dad's Army. So you've got Kent in uh, the home front in the Second World War in the summer of 1940. You've got magic and witches. And it's about a young girl called Faye, who in the first book, The Crow Folk, discovers that her mother... When her mother passed away, she left her a book full of magic and Faye starts uh, developing magical skills. And in the second book, Babes in the Wood, you can tell I've done this before, can't you? <laughs> um, she developed those, those skills even further. She, she learns about moon magic and drawing down the power of the moon and stuff like that. And there are two other witches in the village, uh, Miss Charlotte and, and Mrs. Teach, and they, they're trying to teach her how to be a witch. But it's something's happened to her something she's turning out to be actually quite powerful indeed and the ghost of ivy balm believe it or not is actually sort of based on a true event because uh with the imminent invasion of britain uh you know they were terrified that the nazis were going to invade in the summer of 1940 a group of uh, witches down in the new forest in fact led by a, a warlock called gerald gardner they developed a spell called a cone of power which they they said would repel the nazi invasion and they spent a lot of time dancing around in the nude saying you cannot cross the sea you cannot cross the sea so that's there's a there's a ritual in this that's based on a real event only they do it on the cliffs of white cliffs of dover but Faye has all sorts of other problems not least one of the local farmers has a ghost in his barn and the extract i'm going to start with is um the three witches trying to send the ghost packing trying to get rid of this ghost from uh from larry dell the farm he's got a dent in his head where he's kicked in the head by a horse uh they're going to try and remove this ghost from the barn using using a ritual and that that's what i'm going to read to you now Oh, you know, I'd love to, I'd love it to hear it. And I realized while you were describing it that I'm not a very nice person because the idea of the ghost with the dent in this head just made me laugh. And I'm like, oh my gosh, who am I? But could we have a reading, please? Sure thing. Form a circle, Charlotte commanded. There's three of us, Faye said. We could do a triangle. You know what I mean, Charlotte snapped. Back to back and face outwards. An unseen man's voice screamed inches from Faye's ears. Her heart pounded as if wanting to break out of her chest. Blood rushed in her ears. What the flippin' heck was that? He screamed again. It wasn't like a ghost in the films, all echoey and distant. This sounded like he was standing right next to her. His anguished cries became incessant and the hairs on her arms stood on end. She felt another unnerving sensation. One insider, as the moon's magic warmed her belly. Oh, she shouted over the racket. I don't like this. I'm not sure we are meant to, my dear. Mrs. Teach swished her sage about for all it was worth. Faye thought about correcting her and describing the strange stirring in her tongue, but the only thing she could compare it to was about a flatulence she'd had last Christmas, so she kept it to herself, as this didn't feel like the right time to describe magical wind to Mrs. Teach and Miss Charlotte. 
Ladies, Charlotte said, when I give the word, take one step forwards. I'm not sure I want to, Faye replied. Why not? Because I think it's right in front of me. Mrs. Teach made a patronising mewing noise. And what makes you think that, sweetie? I can see its eyes. It was true. Faye was facing the barn doors and just within arm's reach, she could see two bloodshot eyes suspended in the air. They blinked. Oh, friggin' heck. Take this. Charlotte gave Faye a handful of ash from her black pouch. It was warm and flaky and smelled like the tide was out at the beach. What is it? Throw it in its face. The thing screamed again. The eyes were drifting closer. What will it do? Faye asked, but Charlotte ignored the question. One step forwards now. Faye took a step and flung the ash into the air. The eyes snapped shut and the screams intensified. Faye winced at the sound and that feeling in her belly grew and grew. She was lightheaded and she could see sparkles in the corners of her eyes. Mrs. Teach continued muttering her incantation as Miss Charlotte handed Faye the whole pouch. Again, Charlotte ordered, and they all took another step forwards. Faye threw another handful of ash. The eyes returned even redder and darting about now, accompanied by another agonised scream. I'm hurting it. I don't like it, yelled Faye. It's the only way to convince it to leave, Charlotte shouted over the screams. Another step now. The women did so and were out of arm's reach now, forming either a circle or a triangle. That was a discussion for another time and giving the ghosts less room to manoeuvre. Faye tossed more ash before her. This time the flakes clung to the ghost and she began to see its, his shape as he writhed, clutching the sides of his head. Back, go back to the light, Miss Charlotte told it. We are the Hecate and you have no power here. With a what? Don't interrupt, dear. It's working, Mrs. Teach said between incantations. Another step, Charlotte said. Faye threw more ash and the ghost wailed. I've got one more handful and that's it, she said, looking up into the ghost's face. He was a young man, not much older than her. His hair was lank, like he'd been sweating. His cheekbones were sharp, his lips full and his skin milky white. He looked straight at Faye, his eyes wide, reddened and streaming. Another step now, Charlotte called out, but Faye stayed where she was. The lad wore a tan flight suit with a pale yellow jacket. He had three gulls on a patch in his arm and a belt with some kind of bird on the buckle. Faye knew through looking through Bertie's books that this young man was a pilot with a Luftwaffe. His mouth moved, but he had no voice. Faye could see from the look in his eyes that he was pleading with her to end the pain. It was true. You don't have to be here, Faye said to him gently, her voice wavering as the moon magic inside her made her giddy. You can go any time you want. Go on. Go, have a bit of peace. Another step, Charlotte cried again. Faye glanced back at Mrs. Teach and Miss Charlotte, who were getting closer and closer to the barn's walls. Faye refocused on the ghost. Behind him, by the barn doors, a swirling darkness twisted in the air. It felt old and familiar. That way, she said. He turned and hesitated. I know it must be scary, eh? But I think your time is up. You can either stay here with this lot screaming and waving smelly herbs at you. Or you can find out what's on the other side. Faye had no idea whether he could even hear her, let alone understand her. But he lowered his head and nodded. He gave Faye a small, grateful smile before running to the barn doors. The darkness ballooned and clung around the pilot like smoke as the barn doors swung open and daylight stabbed Faye's eyes. She closed them and let the warmth of the summer sun prickle her skin. By the time her eyes had adjusted to the brightness, the ghost and the darkness were gone. Good work, ladies, Mrs. Teacher's voice came from the far end of the barn. I think we've done it. Miss Charlotte started sniffing the air again. I think you're right. 
Good job. Well done. I'll send a report to Vera and let her know what she says. She gave a little salute and headed back the way she'd come across the bridle path on Larry Dell's Brassica field. I'll let poor Larry know that his barn is safe, Mrs. Teach potted off towards the farmer's cottage. Faye watched them go and wondered if she should tell them what she had seen and what she had felt, but what was done was done and the young pilot was gone now anyway. The odd sensation in her belly was subsiding already and she began to feel like herself again. She turned to close the barn door to find another pilot standing in the centre of the barn. This one wore RAF blues. Half his face was burned red and raw. He looked terrified like a child caught skipping school as he raised a finger to his mouth. Shh! Faye blinked, and when she opened her eyes again, he was gone. Oh, wow. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> really gripping. So this is the third book in the series. And what was it like for you, one, returning back to Woodville and returning to the characters? What was that like? I love it. I absolutely love it. It's the first series I've written with intent. You know, I've uh, I- I've written other books and I've thought, oh, I could write a sequel to that. That could be fun. But this is the one from the outset. I said, this is going to be a series. I want this to run. And potentially this could run all the way through the war if Simon and Schuster keep letting me write them. You know, this could run and run and run. And I just love the idea of having a precinct, the village, and a, an ensemble of characters that I can come back to again and again. We've got our core characters, the witches, and there's Bertie, who Faye and uh, Bertie and Faye have a kind of you know uh, burgeoning love story. But there's you know, all sorts of other little characters that can come in and out of the story, and 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 with every story, there's a new supernatural threat as well. So coming back with the second and the third and the third one in particular, it was kind of, it was like coming home. It was like, uh, you know, revisiting old friends. And what's been lovely is the feedback from readers has been along those lines. People have been saying, Oh, it's so lovely to return to the village and and meet these villagers and and like catch up with, with, with what they're doing this time. So it was, it was great. It doesn't really make it, it makes some things easier in that you don't have to establish the characters again, but then you have to, uh, give them new dilemmas, test them in different ways. Uh, and what I find is really helpful is having, for each book in the series, having a, a, a sort of central dramatic argument, an idea that runs through the whole thing. And so for The Ghost of Ivy Barn, it's a simple question, which is, are we better off alone or working as a team? And so it's something I ask of all the characters. It's something that Faye, Faye's got these other two witches, but she's getting so powerful, she's thinking, I could do this on my own. But they have to do a ritual, which involves collaborating with other witches who are quite spiky people and normally don't like working with other people they don't you know they don't it's like herding cats you know and and all through it you know i'm asking people the same question and and it sort of helps give the story a unity and interrogates it from all kinds of angles and i think when i'm when writing a series it's kind of like writing tv uh, where you have you know you come back to the same place the same characters but you, you test them with a different idea each time Oh, I love that. Could we have another reading, please? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to introduce you to the villain of the piece. And this is, um, this, there's a kind of a whodunit element to it, but like Columbo, which I still think is some of the best whodunit TV, you know who it is from the outset. There's no mystery as to whodunit, but that I love the tension that when the reader knows whodunit and your protagonist doesn't, you kind of think, oh, don't, oh, don't, don't, you know, they're, in, they're left alone in the room with them. It sort of adds the tension to it. And I remember thinking very early on, do I reveal who the murderer is or do I keep it a secret? So I thought I'd reveal them. 
and not least because it allowed me to keep this opening where I you, <laughs> you you discover who she is and just quite how wicked she really is. Jennifer Gentle had discovered that it was jolly easy to kill a witch. Dolly Greengrass, a scryer of some repute, was a trusting old soul and partial to tea and carrot cake. Jennifer simply had to lace a slice with the requisite amount of strychnine and sit quietly as the old dear gasped for breath on a living room rug. It was a crude way to bump someone off. Jennifer didn't have time for anything magical, but it was awfully effective. Dolly's black cat joined Jennifer on the armchair, claws scratching at the antimacassar as she watched her primary source of food pass away in front of her. Don't worry, Dolly dear. Jennifer reassured her as she snapped open a little silver powder mirror and applied a little lipstick. Just don't fight it. Not long now. How wrong Jennifer had been. It was an hour before Dolly stopped rasping and kicking her legs and a further two hours for her to stop twitching. If killing a fellow witch was relatively easy, albeit time consuming, then getting rid of the body was a more complicated kettle of fish. At least it was dark. One of the benefits of the blackout, even as a, in a city as busy as London, was that it allowed for all kinds of nefarious activities after sundown. Jennifer's ambulance was parked in an alley behind Dolly's terraced house in Plumstead. She popped out of the back door, down the garden, past the outhouse, skipped along the alley and opened the ambulance doors. All around her were darkened houses. Their windows were crisscrossed with tape, blackout curtains drawn, and the indigo sky was swept by distant searchlights. Somewhere on the main road, a couple chuckled as they made their way home, but their voices soon faded. Jennifer had never been much good at creating a glamour to hide herself, but she had always struggled to be noticed anyway. If she ever attended a party, people would step around her as if she were a hat stand. Trying to get the attention of a waiter in a restaurant was a futile task for Jennifer Gentle. Teachers at school would forget her name, as would uncles and cousins. Even a mother referred to her as girl more often than not. Now she could finally use that anonymity to dispose of her victims. Jennifer left the ambulance doors open, dashed back inside and returned soon after, dragging Dolly's strychnine-stiffened body and dumping it in a wheelbarrow. This was the most risky part of the whole evening. If someone were to stumble upon the scene, it might just look a smidge unsavoury, what with Dolly being all twisted and contorted and such though Jennifer was sure that the combination of the ambulance, her charm, and her first aid nursing yeomanry uniform should be able to convince even the most suspicious of snoopers that she was helping a poor elderly deer get to hospital. If that didn't work, she had a cheese knife concealed in her cap that would make short work of anyone's jugular. Yeah, she's lovely, Jennifer. She was really, really good fun to write. She's, uh, she yeah. sounds like it. She's skipping down the walkway. <laughs> <laughs> she pops out like it's like she hasn't just committed a murder. Yeah, well, it's it, it's funny. I, I remember finishing the first draft and she didn't work. There was something about that didn't quite click. And again, using that central dramatic argument, going back and thinking, okay, here's someone who loves being on her own. Who, who has discovered that people have overlooked her all her life, people see through her, and that allows her, allows her to do something that she's good at, which is murdering people. And so, you know, so it was kind of, a, she, she's kind of the anti-fay, you know, the opposite, the sort of the shadow of, of our hero. And uh, they become very close in the story. And I think that's that's quite fun watching the pair of them together. And, you know, 
actually genuinely getting along. And I think that one of the things I like about Faye throughout all the stories is she never condemns the monsters, the supernatural threat. She's, she's never like, oh, they're just evil. She, uh, she will always see, she will always have sympathy for the monster in some way. Whereas others, you know, might see a terrible creature, want to stomp on it. She'll want to know more about it. So she's, um, I like that about her. She's never one to quickly rush to conclusions about something just because it maybe has horns and fangs or whatever. So, um, so yeah. And Jennifer, you know, it is when they first meet, Faye thinks, gosh, she's a bit posh. She's very sophisticated. Um, she's got her life together in a way that I haven't. So there isn't an, an attraction uh, between them, which um, almost gets deadly. So, yeah. And that's a shame because Jennifer seems to um, be noticed by Faye. So here's like Faye is the one person who notices her. Exactly. And yeah. yeah. We'll yeah. wish that she hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> so it's set in Woodville and yours is in Kent. And so I looked it up and it's not where the, nope. you know, <laughs> I guess real Woodville actually is. So what does creating a fictional place make possible in terms of setting, narrative and history? Well, I we moved here because I, I grew up in London. It mentions Plumstead. I mean, I was born in St. Thomas's. We used to live in Plumstead and then moved to Hornsey. And then when I was eight or nine, we moved out to Surrey. And I went to a school called Woodville. My parents were, my dad was the school caretaker. My mum was one of the cleaners. And, you know, working class family. But I had this school. I had fields to run in. And it just, it, it accounts for my state of arrested development. I never really grew up. Uh, and I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. So that's where the name comes from. And then about five years ago, uh, my wife, and my family and I, we moved out to rural Kent. So we're in North Kent, sort of between Herne Bay and Margate, really in the middle of nowhere. And around us, there's fields. And I've been toying with this idea for some time. And suddenly I had a location. Uh, I thought I could basically put it at the end of my garden, a small village, and just do a greatest hits of Kent villages. Because we, you know, when you move somewhere new, you go and visit, you see, and there are some beautiful villages around here, you know, Tudor buildings, lovely old churches, tea rooms, all that kind of thing. And I thought, because up the road from me in Whitstable is an author called Julie Wasmer, and she sets murder mysteries in Whitstable. And there are real locations in there, which is great because, you know, it, it gives a kind of a sense of, you know, gives her a sense of ownership. But she had said, I've had to change this and I've had to change that. I just thought, actually, wouldn't it be great if I just invented my own greatest hits of Kent Village and I could add, I could have what, if so, I want a church with bells, I can have a church with bells. If I want a pub called The Green Man, I can have a pub called The Green Man. So I, it's it's kind of mine and I can add bits on as and when I need to. So, you know, that, so in the second book, I need an antique shop. So there's an antique shop, you know. So that's really where it's come from. And it's, uh, and I kind of want to reclaim because, I mean, you know, round here in Kent, the Second World War is still... There are still pillboxes. You walk through fields and there are these concrete boxes with the little holes in them where they were going to put machine guns if the tanks, you know, the German tanks came across. You know, this was going to be the front line if the Germans invaded. There's a Spitfire Museum up the road where uh, at Manston, which is where a lot of, you know, aircraft used to take off. And the Battle of Britain took place right overhead. So it's still very much here. People still remember it. But what I want to do with this is uh, there is a thing about the Second World War can get quite jingoistic, quite, you know, a bit. Ooh. And one of the things, once you start researching the Second World War and looking into it, you realise a lot of the myths that we associate with it aren't quite true. So, you know, that scene with Jennifer is in London. Crime went through the roof in London 
during the Second World because because of the blackouts, because you know there there were fewer police, you know there there were resources were really stretched. You know the 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 um the criminal mad Frankie Fraser. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Is one of those he knew the craze and people like that. He said the Second World War was the best time for him because they got away with all sorts of terrible stuff. And he said he, he was the one who said Hitler gave in too easily. He said we could have gone on for a few more years. I mean, you know, so you know this was. Crime was through the roof. Terrible things were happening. So this idea we're all in it together. Yeah, there was some of that, but there was there's this dark underbelly to it as well. So I'm always looking for something that subverts, that takes the things that we assume about history and shows you a different shade to it, shows you a different side to it. And that's part of the fun with these books as well. That's fascinating because I've never, I feel like I've never ever like heard about um, the stories that I guess we hear about what happens when, you know, during a war and you're right, it's people coming together and looking out for each other and, and how people took care of one another's kids and, you know, and the family down the road, bringing milk and eggs and checking on other people yeah, and yeah. stuff like that, but never about like, um, you know, people being like, well, I mean, gosh, and now thinking about it, it makes perfect sense. Well, someone's not home because they're away fighting. And so, you know, whatever that house is empty or more vulnerable yeah. And older people being left behind. And my goodness, mm. I just never, I never would have thought that that was a time when crime was just like, and <laughs> yeah. now I'm thinking, wow, how naive have I been? <laughs> well, it's, it's just, you know, history is written by the victors and we look back on these things with rose tinted glasses. And, um, you know, there's uh, Anthony Horowitz did a TV series called Foils War, which is all about that. You know that that kind of um, crimes during the Second World War. So it's, uh, but yeah, it's. Um, I like. You know, I'm always looking for opportunities to take, take, take things at a slightly different angle. You know. Yeah, as readers, I think we appreciate that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So speaking of which, maybe we have our final reading, please. Yeah, well, I thought we'd finally meet our ghost, um, Leo. So we, we kind of saw him right at the end of that first reading where he goes, shh. And, so, and he's a Polish hurricane pilot uh, who, uh, and I, again, I wanted to, there was the temptation was to make him, you know, a British Spitfire pilot or, but of course the, the Polish, again, I, I sort of did some digging and you discover that they were basically on the run through, from the very beginning of the war, retreating, retreating. And the British, we promised them planes, but we didn't give them the planes that we promised because we thought, you know, we were going to need these ourselves. We could see how the Blitzkrieg was advancing. And we could, this is one of the reasons why very few planes went to Dunkirk, because we didn't want to lose them, because we knew there was a bigger battle further down the line. And so he's he's one of these Polish pilots who who came to the UK and they had they got their own squadron in the end. Not by the time this book, uh, is set which is august 1940 but a little after that they got their own squadron uh polish uh hurricane pilots and were key to winning the battle of britain so i thought yeah let's um let's let's see this again from a slightly different perspective so this is um uh faye is talking to leo in the barn the ghost in the barn and talking about how he got there leo's head hung heavy and he shuffled over to the barn door looking out to the field my father had a farm like this one, he said. He kept cows. My sisters and I would milk them every morning. Mama, too, when she wasn't looking after her chickens. She loved them so much. What did you do? I was at the Polish Air Force Academy, but I helped whenever I came back. Is that where you learned to fly? I was an instructor. I'm older than most pilots, slower but more experienced. I was there on the first day of September when the Stukas came with their bombs. I volunteered for combat. We flew P-11s. You ever see one? Faye shook her head. 
a good plane. The best we had, but a tin can compared to the Luftwaffe's fighters. You British promised us hurricanes, but they never came. Our planes were old, underpowered, tired. Mine didn't even have a radio. But it was our homes, our families. We had to take to the skies. We had to fight. Guilt gave Faye a squeeze. Leo continued with a satisfied smile. We gave them a bloody nose. I shot down a bomber. His smile faded. On the second day, I was hit. Had to bail out. Burned my hand. After getting treatment, I was ordered to fly to Romania. Then France. Then here. Running. Always running. He turned and moved towards Faye. Less aggressive than before, but no less passionate. But now we get to fight back in a beautiful hurricane. Oh, it's like being in a bird. And the Luftwaffe, now it's their turn to be afraid. My first flight in a hurricane, I got my first kill. Second day, I got two kills. All right, mate, no one likes to show off. Faye thought back to the pilots in the pub who spoke about their battles like they were a game. Leo nodded. You're right. And that's what went wrong. I got greedy. I wanted three for three. He looked up as clouds passed over the moon and darkened the barn. We were flying back to base, 12 of us, all in formation. I saw a Dornier bomber, all alone and heading back to France. I told my commander, who ordered me to stay in formation. I ignored him and attacked. I hadn't seen the Dornier's escort. Three BF-110 fighters. Leo glanced at Faye, twitching a smile. I tell myself now that I didn't stand a chance, but I should have turned back. I had time, but I was so, so furious. The first shells hit my fuel tank. Petrol spilled into the cockpit. I looked down and I was surprised. Leo gave a little chuckle to find that my legs were on fire. I tried to open the canopy and bail out but the second round of shells took my starboard wing. The sky spun around me. I hit one of the BF-110s. I was blinded by fire when I hit the ground. The clouds moved past the moon, and its light filled the barn once more. I remember all of it, Leo said. The cold fear. The pain. And then I found myself here. Wow. Where can we buy The Ghost of Ivy Barn? Um, pretty much anywhere you want to buy books, I suppose. I mean, it's uh, if you're in the US or overseas, might be a bit tricky because some issues to got UK and Commonwealth rights. So the UK, Commonwealth is fine. In the US, I would recommend using the book depository because they offer free worldwide uh, postage and packing. Um, but yeah, it's Waterstones, Amazon. Um, there's a lovely independent bookshop called Coles Books who you can get a free badge and it's signed as well. So, uh, and the free badge is, um, I've got a, a newsletter, which is, um, it's not written by me. It's written by the, the head librarian of Woodville Village Library, a woman called Araminta Cranberry. And um, she doesn't approve of my other books, but she likes the Woodville series. So she writes a newsletter about them. And uh, there are free short stories you can get from the newsletter as well. So if you go to witchesofwoodville.com, you can find out more there. I absolutely love that. Mark, thank you so much for joining us for the readings. I loved hearing you read. Thank you for that. And for answering our questions. I really appreciate it. 
Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. It's always, always a pleasure. And um, yeah, thank you so much.